Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Ariel Tan of IPS and the MC today. Welcome to the third IPS Northern Lecture Series entitled The Challenges of Governance in a Complex World by Mr. Peter Ho, our 2016-2017 SR Northern Fellow. Following Mr. Ho's lecture, he has kindly agreed to take questions from the floor. The Q&A session will be chaired by Ms. Deborah Soon of MediaCorp. The lecture will be filmed and the tape uploaded on the IPS website and YouTube. And now, may I invite IPS Director Mr. Janadas Devan to give the opening remarks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the third IPS Northern Lecture Series. The SR Northern Fellowship for the Study of Singapore was established in 2014 to pay tribute to our sixth and longest serving president, Mr. SR Nathan. Mr. Nathan passed away last August, but the legacy of his contributions to Singapore, to the development of Singapore, and his selfless dedication to public service shall remain with us for a long time. It lives on among generations of public servants he had led, trained, and sometimes whipped into shape Two of them, at least, are here, many others too, including the previous um, SR Nathan lecture and the current uh, SR Nathan lecture, both of whom served under President Nathan. And of course, he left his mark among all Singaporeans from all walks of life, whom he had helped or inspired with his kindness and generosity. We are proud to be the custodian of, for a special place for Mr. Nathan's legacy. This fellowship aims to promote research and discourse on public policy and governance. It is designed to be held on the university campus um, and it seeks to advance public understanding and stimulate discussion of issues of critical national interest, particularly among young Singaporeans and students. Um, we raised about $6 million, um, including the matching grant from the government to endow this fellowship. I would like to thank individuals as well as corporations, including um, those who give to IPS annually as part of the Corporate Associates Program for their support and generosity in funding this fellowship. As it so happens, the first three SR Northern Fellows, Mr. Ho Kwam Ping, who is here also, Bilahari, and Mr. Peter Ho, were all three personal choices of Mr. SR Northern. Because when we established the fellowship, we asked him who would he like us to consider, and he gave us these three names, so we are fulfilling his wish. The fourth will be our choice. <laughs> so, Peter has been cursing me for the past half hour uh, for arm twisting him. It's actually not my fault, it's actually Mr. Nathan's <laughs> behest uh, that he does this lecture. Now, Peter has um, had a remarkable career in the public sector. Uh, he began, um, like all of us did, in national service and in the military. He was an SAF scholar, and he was posted um, to the then non-existent Navy. I don't know whether the Navy had just been established or was about to be established. And one day, he was called up by none other than Mr. Lee Kuan Yew. He and um, um, uh, now Deputy Prime Minister Teo Chien and told, you're going to the Navy. Um, and he ended up there, and, he, um, and then later became head of the civil service from 2005 to 2010, 
and held permanent, permanent secretary appointments at the Ministries of Defence and Foreign Affairs, as well as the Prime Minister's office. He is currently senior advisor to the Centre for Strategic Futures and chairman of the Urban Redevelopment Authority of Singapore. Just last year, as all of you know, he was the only recipient that year of the prestigious Distinguished Service Order or National Day Awards. Um, Peter has a capacious and um, my research assistant put down devious strategic mind. Um, as head of civil service, he is well known for having pushed hard and relentlessly for what we now call a whole of government approach and for a more deeply networked approach to strategic planning and policy implementation. He insisted on making long-term investments to develop the special mindset and capabilities necessary for strategic anticipation and risk management. Peter got ahead of the future. Peter also happens, actually all three SR Nathan fellows, besides having been named by SR Nathan himself, are also very old friends of mine. Um, and Peter, as it so happens, is the oldest among them. I think I've known him since we were, I think, 10 or 11. Um, he's looking askance right now. This is when I sort of bring out the baby photographs. Um, but, um, uh, we were classmates um, um, and um, before our paths diverged. Uh, believe it or not, um, he was a very sweet young man. <laughs> um, um, very gentle. Um, Yang was, Zhe Yang was also a classmate of mine, and you will confirm, he was actually a very sweet young man. Um, he has now grown into, as my research assistant tells me, a devious strategic mind. <laughs> and the title of his lecture series um, is The Challenges of Governance in a Complex World, and he will begin by hunting black swans and taming black elephants. Without further ado, Peter, I invite you to deliver your lecture. Well, I think I got three more lectures to figure out how I'm going to respond to Janadas's introduction. Uh, but before I begin, I think it's really appropriate that I say something about the late Mr. S. R. Nathan, for whom this uh, fellowship is named. And as all of you know, he was, had a very long and storied career in public service. He started out as a social worker. He played an instrumental role in the founding of the National Trades Union Congress, and he helped to lay the foundations of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, a ministry which I served for several years in different capacities. And as Director of Security Intelligence Division, Mr. Nathan put his life on the line without hesitation during the 1974 Laju Ferry hijack. And of course, he eventually became Singapore's longest-serving president, a position which he held with grace and distinction, epitomizing the ideals of public service. Now, as Janadas mentioned, he inspired and trained generations of public servants like me in the craft of government. But he brought to his work a broad-minded and earthy understanding of human nature and society. 
He avoided easy answers to the challenges of governance. And in his book, S.R. Northern in Conversation, he was quoted as saying, Policy decisions are complex. The straightforward yes and no answers, often demanded by critics, are rarely possible. There are often grey areas, compromises. There's never an ideal solution to anything. You can very rarely have changes without some kind of sacrifice. And this observation is a, a natural lead-in to the topic of this evening's lecture, Hunting Black Swans and Taming Black Elephants, Governance in a Complex World. Now, it, this is the first of four lectures, and they're all connected, but this first lecture is a bit of a scene setter. And all the lectures are linked, and I shall use the framework of complexity to explain some emerging concepts of governance in each of these four lectures. And in addition, I shall use the approach of circling and deepening, a description that has been applied to the late Nobel laureate Derek Walcott's work. I shall revisit themes and examples in every lecture, circling and deepening around them in order to generate new insights and fresh learning points. But it is in this first lecture that I shall dive more deeply into complexity in order to explain what it is and why it is so relevant to governments and to good governance in today's unpredictable and uncertain world. I shall also explain why the nature of governance is changing in response to complexity and how governments can adapt to these changes. Stephen Hawking, the world-famous theoretical physicist, said, I think the next century, that is the current century we are in, the 21st century, will be the century of complexity. But what is complexity and what is its relevance to governance? Complex is different from complicated. An engineering system is merely complicated. It could be an A380, a telecommunication satellite. Its inner workings may be very difficult for laymen, who is more likely than not to, to describe it as complex when it is actually just complicated. Complicated systems have Newtonian characteristics in that they perform predetermined functions that are predictable and repeatable, in which input leads to a pre predictable outcome. In contrast, a complex system will not necessarily behave in a repeatable and predetermined manner. And this is because a system that is complex contains a large number of autonomous agents, parts, connected to one another and interacting in a great many ways. They often generate their own feedback loops. Now, to understand the behavior of a complex system, we must understand not only the behavior of each of these thousands of millions, countless agents, but also how they interact with one another and how they act together as a whole. But with the current state of science, this is an almost insurmountable challenge. Cities like Singapore are undoubtedly complex systems. They are made up of hundreds of thousands, even millions of people, who are the agents in the parlance of complexity. Each person interacts with others, producing outcomes that often confound and astonish planners and policy makers. 
Jane Jacobs, a scholar of urban systems, American scholar, aptly described the complexity of cities in a highly influential book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities. And she wrote, city processes in real life are too complex to be routine, too particularized for application as abstractions. They are always made up of interactions among unique combinations of particulars, and there's no substitute for knowing the particulars. Well, it's not just cities. All human systems are complex. Countries are complex, as are political systems. The world as a whole is complex. Now, of course, you'll find many definitions of complexity, but all of them agree that complex systems are characterized by the property of emergence. What does this mean? The connections and interactions among the many agents in a complex system lead to outcomes that are inherently unpredictable ex ante, and that are only revealed when they actually occur. So when something happens, we are actually surprised. Nicholas Nassim Taleb famous famously described one class of such surprises, rare and hard-to-predict events, as black swans. In Talib's view, black swans are not just surprising, but also have another important characteristic. Their impact is large and game-changing. In 2002, not long after 9-1-1, Donald Rumsfeld, who was then US Secretary of Defense, introduced us to a close relative of the black swan, the unknown unknown, and he said, there are no knowns. These are things we know we know. We also know that there are known unknowns. That is to say we know that there are some things we do not know. But there are also the unknown unknowns, the ones we don't know we don't know. Now, you know, you may laugh, but if you're in the business of government, or if you have at least a passing interest in our future, then you ought to know what known unknowns are and what unknown unknowns are, because you're going to be surprised by both every now and then. And it helps to understand the difference between them. When I was a young officer in MINDEF in the early 80s, I think I would have found it very difficult, if not impossible, to grasp the concept of transnational terrorism that today preoccupies governments around the world because the conditions that produced Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State did not exist in those days. And in those days, cyber warfare was a concept that we could only dimly understand because the underlying technology was just emerging. Today, such things have become part of mainstream thinking. Indeed, one of the foremost challenges facing any government is the challenge of strategic surprise. Singapore has experienced many of our own strategic surprises in our short life as an independent state. The Asian financial crisis of 1997-98 was one, as was the uncovering of the Jamaa Islamiyah terrorist network in December 2001. SARS, the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, which hit Singapore in February 2003, precipitated a national crisis, leaving more than 30 people dead, and caused a recession that year. 
Then in 2008-2009, the shocking and unexpected collapse of Lehman Brothers led to the global economic and financial crisis. Since then, there have been a succession of shocks, including the drastic plunge in oil prices that began in 2014, the reverberations of which are still being felt today. Brexit, and most recently, the US presidential elections. Need I say more? The complexity of our world owes a lot to its highly interconnected nature. The world has been transformed by huge leaps forward in technology in the last half century, especially in telecommunications and more recently, the internet. These, combined with other innovations in transportation, such as the container and commercial jet aircraft, have catalyzed globalization and led to vastly increased trade as well as the movement of people around the world. The resulting increase in density of connections and feedback loops has in turn greatly increased complexity at the global level. In this highly interconnected world, what happens in one part is going to affect other parts. And there's the so-called butterfly effect, which postulates that the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil can set off a tornado in Texas. Now, this was the title of a lecture by Dr. Edward Lorenz. The butterfly is, effect is the concept that small changes in initial conditions can produce large effects in a complex system. Not surprisingly, it was in weather forecasting that scientists gained a lot of insights into this phenomenon. But more generally, events and actions in different parts of a highly interconnected system interact with each other in complex, nonlinear ways to produce effects that are really very difficult to determine ex ante. Instead, to use the term I introduced earlier, their behavior is emergent. And to reiterate, this is the defining characteristic of the complex world that we live in today. A vivid example of the but butterfly effect is the Tohoku earthquake that occurred six years ago. Now, Japan is one of the most seismically active regions in the world. So why was the calamity that befell Japan on 11th March 2011 such a big surprise? Was it because of the scale of the disaster? And indeed, the Tohoku earthquake was a huge catastrophe for, catastrophe for Japan. It killed around 18,000 people and resulted in direct material damages estimated by some at well over 250 billion US dollars for Japan, making it the most expensive natural disaster in history. But an equally important reason for the butterfly effect the chain of events beginning with the earthquake, which triggered a large tsunami, which then damaged the Fukushima nuclear power plant, causing a meltdown and radiation leakage. Arguably, it was this meltdown that was the black swan. Its impact was felt far beyond Japan, like the hypothetical tornado in Texas. It brought the safety of civilian nuclear power into question, not just in Japan, but around the world, 
and led to one major economy half a world away from Fukushima, that is Germany, to forswear its use. The Fukushima nuclear disaster was the result of complex interconnections and interdependencies, combined in this case with significant human failures, including outright negligence and what Margaret Heffernan called willful blindness in her book of that title. The reality is that it is extremely difficult to estimate the cumulative effects of such events in a complex system. It makes preparing for unforeseen situations an exercise fraught in difficulty. It also adds to the challenges of governments operating in complex systems, situations. Now let me uh, wind back a bit to December 2010. Gentleman was Mohamed Bouazizi, a street vendor in Tunis who set himself alight. He was upset that he was not being helped by the authorities, he was harassed by the authorities, and it was a terminal protest because he died from the self-immolation. But that single act, a single event, triggered the Arab Spring. The consequences were dramatic. Governments collapsed in Tunisia, Egypt, Libya and Yemen, and governments changed in Kuwait, Bahrain and Oman. A civil war broke out in Syria, and it is still raging more than six years after Bozizi killed himself. And it can be argued that these events set the stage for the rise of the Islamic State. The most imaginative novelist could not have written the script for the Arab Spring. It would have taken the bravest analyst a huge leap of imagination to predict the Arab Spring such as it was. Truth, as it is often said, is stranger than fiction. The famous British historian and politician, Harold Fisher, H.L. Fisher, concluded in 1935, not without a touch of irony, when he said, men wiser and more learned than I have discerned in history a plot, a rhythm, a predetermined pattern. These harmonies are concealed from me. I can only see one emergency following another, and only one safe rule for the historian, that he should recognize in the development of human destinies the play of the contingent and the unforeseen. In other words, we shall continue to be surprised. The Arab Spring has spawned a growth industry. There are now countless political and social scientists, historians, Arabists, all trying to explain the causes of the Arab Spring. Many will find convincing reasons as to why these events unfolded as they did. But all this will be in retrospect. It is in the very nature of such post-mortem analysis that thinking and explanation must be fundamentally backward-looking. That explanations after the fact are the norm for strategic surprises like the Arab Spring and the Fukushima nuclear disaster underlines the lack of any simple patterns in the complex world that we live in. The 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard observed that life is understood backwards but must be lived forwards. You can look backwards in time to understand why something happened. That is hindsight. But hindsight does not necessarily translate into foresight. 
simply because we can provide an explanation for why the current state of affairs has arisen, does not mean that we are in a position to forecast the next drama or political catastrophe. Instead, these outcomes seem to be lurking somewhere, hidden from view, just over the horizon or around the corner, to surprise us when we least expect it. That is a problem. We cannot predict the future. And undoubtedly, there are fascinating what-if questions arising from the drama of the Arab Spring. What if Muhammad Bazizi had not set himself on fire, or if he had survived the self-immolation? Would, would there have been an Arab Spring? The fact of the matter is that we cannot really answer such what-if questions. The propensity to agonize over and analyze surprising and shocking events, such as the Arab Spring, satisfies the emotional need for answers to questions like what if and why. But such illumination will not necessarily help us to anticipate or to avoid the next strategic shock. The future is neither inevitable nor immutable. Applying the lessons of history is not enough to guide us down the right path into the future. Indeed, it is doubtful whether a single right path even exists. Singapore's founding Prime Minister, the late Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, said, the past was not preordained, nor is the future. There are as many unexpected problems ahead as there were in the past. It sounds like a truism, but it is the reality that governments have to deal with. The complexity of the world is something that governments should not ignore. The rise of complexity will generate more uncertainty and increase the frequency of black swans and other strategic surprises. In other words, complexity can cause big headaches for governments. On the other hand, governments that make the effort to understand complexity and then learn to manage complexity will gain a big competitive advantage. While they cannot avoid black swans altogether, they will be in a better position to subdue the impact of strategic surprise and reduce uncertainty. They will also be better placed to exploit opportunities ahead of the rest. Uh, Professor Kees van Heiden, the pioneer Dutch scenario planner, said, there are winners because of uncertainty. Without uncertainty, there can be no winners. Instead of seeing uncertainty as a problem, we should start viewing it as a basic source of our future success. In fact, it was Charles Darwin who first recognized that uncertainty is a necessary precondition for change and adaptation to occur. And it is complexity that produces the uncertainty essential for innovation and serendipity. In this regard, economists like Ricardo Hausmann and Cesar Hidalgo argue that the most important predictor of growth is economic complexity or the diversity of products that an economy possesses. So complexity does have an upside as well, and I will touch on this in more detail in my third lecture. Yet, governments often ignore the complexity of their operating environment. They typically deal with complexity as if it is amenable to simple and deterministic, even linear policy prescriptions. In a sense, the crux of public policy has been to apply if not impose, orderly solutions to the myriad of complex problems 
that afflict our societies, our politics, and our lived everyday experiences in largely vain attempts to make what is complex merely complicated. And we see this in legal systems that are based on uniform punishments to complex and varied crimes, in public health enterprises that treat patients as largely homogeneous, and education systems and pedagogies that assume all children develop uniformly or ought to. Now, all these phenomena point to an additional layer to the challenge of complexity, and that is our own human nature. All human beings, including the great and good, are afflicted with cognitive biases or, more simply, blind spots. Many disruptions, including natural disasters, pandemics, even financial crises and political upheavals, do not necessarily fall into the category of black swans. Instead, more often than not, they are either known knowns or known unknowns. Once upon a time, all disasters, storms, floods, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, arrived without warning. Today, modern science helps to forecast such cataclysms with increasing accuracy. Many of such disruptions can now even be assigned probabilities, and this ought to lead governments to take precautionary measures, but often they do not. In his bestseller, Collapse, the scientist and polymath Jared Diamond alludes to the inability to read trends or to see behind the phenomenon of creeping normality. Things just get a little worse each year than the year before, but not bad enough for anyone to notice. It is like the proverbial frog in boiling water. Indeed, people often have a hard time properly ascertaining the present value of events that will take place in the future. And this tendency to discount the future, to place less emphasis on future risks and contingencies, and instead to place more weight on present costs and benefits, is a common cognitive bias known as hyperbolic discounting. Governments are particularly susceptible to the cognitive bias of hyperbolic discounting. The institutional position that political leaders occupy discourages them from spending time worrying about a problem that will hopefully disappear or only occur when they leave office. And this begs the question of how viable a public policy enterprise is if the boundary condition is the term of a particular government at worst or the lifetime of an already-born citizen at best. Related to this question, related to this is the question of responsibility and trade-offs. For example, it can be argued that the current generation has the responsibility of stewardship of the future. However, in order to fulfill that duty, certain tough decisions have to be made and taken in the here and now. How much appetite is there really for such long-term thinking in this society or in any society? At the risk of generalization, many governments tend to focus on immediate problems and priorities which are related to the election cycle. They would rather defer expenditure on something that may or, not, may or may not happen. And that is why, despite understanding the threat posed to future generations by something like global warming, many governments discount those effects and instead place greater emphasis 
on the current cost of mitigation and adaptation, leading to really suboptimal policies if one takes the long view. Which leads me to another member of my menagerie, the black elephant. What is the black elephant? The black elephant is the evil spawn of our cognitive biases. It is a cross between a black swan and the proverbial elephant in the room. The black swan is a problem that is actually visible to everyone, but no one wants to deal with it, so they pretend as if it is not there. And of course, when it blows up as a problem, we all feign surprise and shock, behaving as if it was a black swan. Last year, many of us would have been astonished to learn that the Treasury in the United Kingdom had made no contingency plans for Brexit, despite the fact that the polls showed that the outcome of the referendum would be a close call. The British military, which I presume is like most armed forces and makes contingency plans at the drop of the hat, also reportedly did nothing. The UK government looked decidedly flat-footed the day after the referendum. Surely this is an example of a black elephant. In fact, the only institution that had a plan B was the Bank of England. And my surmise it is, is that because the governor is not British, Mark Carney is Canadian-Irish. <laughs> he had no emotional skin in the game and could take an objective, dispassionate look at the situation. In 2013, a small Ebola outbreak in Guinea ballooned within a year into an international health emergency declared, I think, August 2014. Over 10,000 people died, and the economic cost to the affected nations in West Africa is estimated in the billions of dollars. But it could have been nipped in the bud if appropriate actions had been taken right at the start. These examples illustrate the tendency of the human mind to underestimate or ignore both sudden crises as well as slow burn issues, and often through hesitation and until events reach crisis proportions, nobody takes any action. Unfortunately for us, the black elephant is not an endangered species in the wild jungles of government. At best, we can try to cull them, but they are a resilient lot because of our collective cognitive failures. So, what can governments do to improve the way they manage complexity and at the same time mitigate the effects of various cognitive biases that afflict them? One of the pioneer members of the Singapore cabinet, Mr. S. Rajaratnam, was a very forward-looking person with a strategic outlook. And way back in 1979, he said this, there are practical men who maintain that such speculations, which is speculations about the future, are a waste of time, and they have no bearing at all on solutions to immediate day-to-day -day problems. This may have been so in earlier periods of history when changes were few and minute and were spread over decades and centuries. But because we are not only living in a world of accelerating changes, but also of changes which are global in scope and which permeate almost all aspects of human society, and since change is about the future, then only a future-oriented society can cope with the problems of the 21st century. 
Mr. Rajaratnam was talking about the operating environment of a globalised and complex world in which the pace of change is accelerating. And how do we cope with that? We must learn to think systematically about a future that is inherently volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous, or VUCA. That's an American military acronym. But herein lies the conundrum that all governments face. How do you make plans and policies for the long term, knowing that changes in the operating environment are likely to occur within a shorter time frame and that they will inevitably impact or even negate these plans? When you launch any big capital or infrastructure program, you make certain assumptions. But inevitably, there will be changes in technology and disruptions to the strategic environment. How do you factor in these changes, many of which cannot be foreseen, into plans and policies that we would like to last for 10, 20, 30 years, or maybe even longer? Well, first we can start by accepting that complexity creates uncertainty. Prediction is not possible. Indeed, if it was, many of us would be out of jobs. Instead, as Mr. Rajaratnam argued, the right approach is an orientation towards thinking about the future in a systematic way. Clearly, changes need to be made to the way governments organize themselves. Their toolboxes must be enlarged. And we can adopt methods and processes that help us to reduce the frequency of strategic surprise. And when the inevitable shock occurs, to reduce the amplitude or intensity of its impact. Some of us call this foresight of futures thinking. And it helps policymakers in government devise strategies and formulate policies to maintain positive trajectories and shift negative ones into more positive direction. The goal is to make better decisions today that can help shape the future, rather than to predict the future, which would be a futile exercise anyway. There are foresight methodologies, which are ways to think about the future systematically and ways to help overcome some of our latent biases and inherent cognitive constraints. One of them is the famous scenario planning method, which was developed and pioneered by the oil giant Shell. In fact, using scenario planning, Shell famously avoided the impact of the oil shock after an Arab oil embargo imposed in 1973 after the Yom Kippur War. In the late 1980s, the Singapore government began using Shell's scenario planning techniques, starting in the Ministry of Defence. Today, scenario planning is a key part of the Singapore government's strategic planning process. Indeed, the government takes scenario planning very seriously. National scenario planning exercises are run every few years, and are even incorporated into the annual budget cycle. And the resultant scenarios are used by ministries and agencies as a base reference for their own planning. The first effort at scenario planning at the national level in 1997 produced two scenarios, Hotel Singapore and a Home Divided, whose impact was profound. But they were particularly important then because, among other things, they helped widen the focus of the government lens from geopolitical and geoeconomic issues to cover issues of Singapore society like ageing and social capital, local and community identity, and new fault lines. And this led to the establishment of the National Volunteerism and Philanthropy Centre, NVPC, and the Elderly Division in the then Ministry of Community Development. 
and their influence of these scenarios continues to this day. Used intelligently, scenarios make people aware of problems, uncertainties and challenges, challenges and opportunities that such an environment will present, opening their imagination and initiating learning processes. An example outside of government is Action Plan Singapore, a series of scenario planning exercises run by the Institute of Policy Studies, IPS, starting this year. And it covers things like skills, longevity, and innovation. The big benefit of scenario planning is that it helps overcome our cognitive biases by servicing hidden assumptions and challenging mental models. It helps planners and policymakers to move out of their comfort zones, begin to think the unthinkable, and more willingly explore fresh strategies. Scenario planning helps inculcate an anticipatory mindset in planners and policymakers so that they instinctively raise what-if questions on the issues they deal with. It helps them overcome their blind spots and to confront or at least be aware of black elephants. Notwithstanding these enormous benefits, scenario planning also has some limitations. It is not very useful in locating the black swans and unknown unknowns that are lurking over the horizon. And the Nobel economist and strategic thinker Thomas Schelling explained, one thing a person cannot do, no matter how rigorous his analysis or heroic his imagination, is to draw up a list of things that would never occur to him. To address this deficiency, even if only partially, in Singapore, we have adopted other tools as well. While scenario planning remains the base, a wider range of foresight tools for horizon scanning are now deployed. Horizon scanning tries to identify the big game changes by looking for emerging trends and issues and delving into them to see where the threats and opportunities are. And to support this effort, the Singapore government also developed a computer-based suite of tools called the Risk Assessment and Horizon Scanning System, or RAS. It is actually a pioneering big data system that is used to search for weak, sig weak signals that could evolve into sudden shocks, among other things. And collectively, these tools help planners to uncover and discover some, but certainly not all, of the black swans and unknown unknowns out there. The complexity of our operating environment that produces black swans also produces wicked problems. Design theorists Horst Rittel and Melvin Weber described wicked problems as complex, large and intractable problems with no immediate and obvious solutions. They have causes and influencing factors that are not easily determined ex ante. They hardly ever sit conveniently within the responsibility of a single agency. Worse, they have many stakeholders, each of which sees these problems from different perspectives and who have divergent goals. This means there are no immediate or obvious solutions because no one can agree on what these problems are in the first place, never mind what the solutions should be. It is not at all difficult to find wicked problems. They include the big challenges of our age, such as climate change, the environment, population, urbanization, inequality, and so on. Most crises are wicked problems. There are many stakeholders, but they have competing perspectives, different opinions, and divergent interests. Please one, and you upset many others. Solve one problem, and others will arise. 
Terrorism is a particularly wicked problem. Now, some of you might be surprised by this assertion because you would think that all of us would want to get rid of terrorism, except, of course, the terrorists. But even if everyone agreed on how to distinguish terrorists from legitimate freedom fighters, and there was consensus that terrorism should be banished, it is not clear that any policy prescriptions would gain universal acceptance. If that were the case, terrorism would not be the persistent problem that it is today, and Islamic State would not be a serious threat. The German sociologist Ulrich Beck once wrote, the world has become so complex that the idea of a power in which everything comes together and can be controlled in a centralized way is now erroneous. This means that there's actually no single agency in government that is really equipped to deal with a wicked problem in its entirety. But letting departments tackle different parts of a wicked problem on their own often leads to duplication or to waste, suboptimal policies, and even to new wicked problems. Efforts to understand our complex world and to deal with wicked problems often rely on an assumption that what is complex can be reduced into simpler subsets that are easier to evaluate and that when re-aggregated will produce results that approximate the real world. This approach is called reductionism. It is rooted in the belief that complex phenomena can be analysed in component and simpler parts. And then the assumption is that after these parts have been analysed separately, it is then possible to understand the properties of the whole in terms of the properties and interactions of the components. And this assumption informs much of the methodology of modern science today. It led to the tendency to dissect the complex world into small and less complex parts and to favour explanations framed at the lowest level of scale. Arguably in government, the assumption of reductionism results in a tendency to divide big problems into smaller pieces, and it goes a long way to explain the proliferation of agencies and bureaucracies as a standard response to emerging and wicked problems. But despite the enormous importance of this approach, it gives the false impression that investigating the features of things at a holistic level is less informative than investigating the properties of the components. The Nobel laureate and physicist Philip Anderson argued against reductionism in his 1972 paper, More is Different, and he wrote, the ability to reduce everything to simple fundamental laws does not imply the ability to start from those laws and reconstruct the universe. In fact, the more elementary particle physicists tell us about the nature of fundamental laws and they the less relevance they seem to have to the very real problems of science, much less those of society. Indeed, outside the realm of science, reductionism has not been as effective as explaining phenomenon in areas such as ecology and economics. Conventional efforts to model complex systems, like the Club of Rome's model of economic and population growth, published in 1972 in the seminal Limits to Growth, and which had a profound influence on the po population policies of countries around the world, including Singapore, have often got it badly wrong because of the faults inherent in reductionism. They link parts of a complex system together, assuming that these parts interact with each other in a Newtonian fashion, 
with a clear link between cause and effect. Unfortunately, we now realise that complex systems often defy such deterministic analysis. Complexity science abjures reductionism for the study of how systems interact with other systems, how agents interact with other agents, and then how these lead to emergent rather than causal results. Complexity science tools, including agent-based modelling, which examines how autonomous agents interact with one another and influence system behaviour. These tools, when applied to economics and to other areas like urban planning, provide fresh and usable insights that deterministic models have failed to produce. In Singapore, government agencies are beginning to use such tools to address complex problems in areas such as land transportation, health and housing. Another way to counter the problems inherent in the reductionist approach is for the planner and the policymaker to look at situations, in particular wicked problems, more holistically. And this is because, as many have observed in our complex world, everything is connected to everything else. If we look at each issue from a narrow perspective, we will miss the wood for the trees. At heart, this is also an argument in favour of enlarging our field of vision to see how economics, demographics, societal issues, issues of the environment and of technology interact with each other to produce the complexities of our operating environment. The same complexity that generates wicked problems, black swans and unknown unknowns. This is a more interdisciplinary and counter-reductionist approach. Given the complexity of our world, interdisciplinary collaboration is essential for solving the big challenges of today in science and technology, in the social sciences, in the economy, in urbanization and in the environment. Why not also in geopolitics, geostrategy and geoeconomics? It is not possible, for example, to separate the conduct of foreign policy from other large national interests like economics and trade. So there has to be a lot of internal coordination and sharing of information. To this end, interagency cooperation requires good leadership to grow. And this is in part reflected in Singapore's system of coordinating ministers, a position first established in 2003 with the appointment of the first ever coordinating minister for security and defense. Now there are three coordinating ministers who cover the entire spectrum of government functions, namely national security, economic and social policies and infrastructure. The establishment of these three positions marks the transformation of the Singapore government from a traditional hierarchy into maybe a new age system of government characterized by a whole of government approach. This transformation is significant because the whole of government approach is an important response to managing complexity and dealing with wicked problems. The natural but often inappropriate reductionist approach would be to break down a wicked problem into smaller parts and then leave it to each agency to make its own decentralized and bounded decisions. In contrast, an organization that breaks down vertical silos encourages the spontaneous horizontal flow of information that will enlarge and enrich the worldview of all agencies. This in turn improves the chances that connections otherwise hidden by complexity as well as emergent challenges and opportunities are discovered early. It is an environment in which officers consider the spillover effects of what they do 
and their impact on the policies and plans of other agencies. It is a mindset of willingly working together to achieve common national outcomes instead of serving the particular interests of individual agencies. Take once again terrorism as an example. No single ministry or government agency, not MINDEF nor MFA, has a full range of competencies to deal with this threat on its own. Instead, the efforts of many agencies have to be coordinated and brought to bear on this problem in a whole-of-government approach. This insight and the looming challenge of transnational terrorism led the Singapore government to set up the National Security and Coordination Secretariat. Now, whole-of-government looks eminently reasonable on paper, but while whole-of-government may be an imperative for dealing with wicked problems, it is not easily achieved. Governments, like any large hierarchy, are organized into vertical silos. For whole of government to work, these vertical silos need to be broken down so that information can flow horizontally to reach other agencies. But it is a Sisyphean effort. Whole of government is antithetical to the deeply ingrained bureaucratic silos instinct to operate within silos. More insidiously, institutional identity is something so strong that it colors how each agency views or prioritizes national interests. Richard Nisbet, in his book, The Geography of Thought, takes this argument one step further. He suggests cultural bias. For instance, Westerners tend to see the world in terms of individuals who are linked to others and the surrounding environment in axiomatic ways. From this emerges the emphasis placed in the West on individual rights and the rule of law. In contrast, East Asians, and here Nisbet refers primarily to the Sinic cultures, tend to see individuals and communities and the environments interacting more organically in a dynamic ecosystem. Neither approach is more right than the other, but relying solely on either limits our ability to perceive problems from multiple angles. Extrapolating from this, it is not hard to see why one of the big challenges of government, especially the hierarchical Westminster Western model that Singapore government is derived from, is the occurrence of bureaucratic silos, where information and coordination flow vertically rather than develop horizontally. And this, in turn, is an organizational impediment to sharing of insights and information critical to thinking about the future. And this is a big hurdle to overcome. It requires not just a lot of effort, but a real change of culture to surmount the instinct to operate within silos in order to make whole of government work properly. Often, the leader must nag his people to remind them that the whole of government imperative takes precedence over narrow sectoral interests and perspectives. But this mindset is so important to good governance in a complex operating environment that the whole of government approach today is a priority of the Singapore government. There are interagency platforms that have been established to share information among ministries, statutory boards, and other agencies in order to take in different ideas and insights so that wicked problems can be viewed in their manifold dimensions. Coordinating bodies now deal with cross-agency issues, such as the National Climate Change Secretariat, the National Population and Talent Division. Two years ago, the government set up the PMO Strategy Group with a mission of whole-of-government policy development and coordination. 
Most recently, the government announced the establishment of the Smart Nation and Digital Government Group to give a further whole-of-government push to the Smart Nation effort. At this stage, let me take up the issue of urban planning, a uniquely wicked problem for Singapore. While other countries have large land areas which allow new cities to develop and replace other cities that may decline in relevance and fortune, Singapore, as a small city-state in an island, does not have that luxury. Instead, urban planning in Singapore needs to take into account the challenge of packing in housing, green space, industrial land, commercial and retail space, land for transportation needs, military training areas, all within the confines of a small island of 718 square kilometers, which is less than half the size of London and only two-thirds the size of New York. In Singapore, the entire process of urban planning involves close collaboration among economic, social and development ministries and agencies. It also entails consultation with various stakeholders in the private sector and general public. This whole-of-government approach enables all stakeholders to better understand dependencies and implications of land use and strategic decisions. Planning so far ahead and for multiple possible functions is inherently complex and invariably involves many uncertainties. So national scenarios are used to factor in these uncertainties. Plans are also regularly reviewed. This process of long-term planning and regular review has enabled Singapore to anticipate its needs far in advance and provides the flexibility to respond to surprises and to adapt to changes over time. But such plans are only possible because of an embrace of a whole-of-government approach in which trade-offs in land use are made among the agencies. What is protected is not the narrow sectoral interests of various ministries and agencies, but the larger national interests. At its core, whole of government means finding consensus on strategic priorities. Consensus is made possible through processes like scenario planning because they help align government agencies to the larger national interests. But with increasing complexity, the role of government transformed from being a direct service provider and becomes more of what the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research describes as a lever of public value inside the web of multi-organizational, multi-governmental, and multi-sectoral relationships. This is sometimes called networked government, which refers to the management of the web of relationships within and surrounding government. It is not just about strengthening the formal and informal networks within government, but also those outside of government, both locally and internationally. For instance, government social services rely on collaboration with non-profit and community-based organizations. Examples like this do not indicate a diminishing importance of the government's role. Instead, government may be understood as having multiplied its capabilities by extending its reach beyond institutional boundaries. A government that operates in a networked manner deploys mechanisms that promote reach within the whole nation. Tackling the JI threat has been a wicked problem for Singapore, as I mentioned earlier. It is not just about removing the immediate threat that JI posed to Singapore's security. It also requires engaging multiple stakeholders, including community groups like the religious teachers who started the religious rehabilitation group. It means engaging the private sector to help develop protective systems, processes, and security infrastructure. 
This approach clearly needs not just many agencies of government coming together, but also bringing in the people and the private sectors. In a way, it is not just a whole-of-government approach, but a whole-of-nation effort. And this is because the JI poses a multi-dimensional threat that not only requires collaboration among the security agencies, but also with social agencies that have oversight of issues affecting local communities. The Singapore approach is to fight the JI network with whole-of-nation networks. This is networked government in action. The whole-of-nation approach continues today with the SG Secure Initiative, which is specifically targeted at building community networks. The SG Secure National Movement aims to, and I quote, sensitize, train, and mobilize the community as part of its response to the, in the face of national threats. Another example of whole-of-nation approach is our Singapore Conversation, a year-long process involving more than 600 dialogue sessions and nearly 50,000 participants. This process surfaced fresh insights for government and for citizens, such as the desire for broader definitions of success or greater assurance about health care and retirement that would otherwise have been much more difficult to obtain. It provided the basis for the government to update, revise, and change policies in response to a changing environment. Now, in conclusion, the rise of complexity in today's world throws up enormous challenges for governments around the world. Black swans will confront them, and they will have to deal with wicked problems. Black elephants will be lurking in the background. Foresight will help governments to better deal with complexity and its challenges, but the concept of must, governance must also change in tandem with rising expectations and a more educated and empowered citizenry. Government by agency will evolve into whole of government, which in turn will embrace the broader whole of nation approach that includes business, civil society, and the man in the street. Collectively, these multi-sectoral actors will change the concept of governance, even if they are not part of government traditionally defined. The future of governance in a world of complexity lies in such system-level coordination. But I should conclude by recounting Winston Churchill's astute advice on the, astute, uh, the essential qualities of a good government leader. And it is the ability to foretell what is going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, and next year, and then to have the ability afterwards to explain why it, it, it did not happen. Thank you. Hello, I understand that there are some more people in another room. As you all know, my name is Deborah Soon. I work for Mediacorp. Um, in a previous life, I was a journalist and an editor, and is in that capacity, I guess, which Jandas has arm twisted me into this. Um, but I've had, I haven't had the privilege of working directly for Mr. Peter Ho, but I've had the privilege to observe him on the Pro Enterprise panel, of which I was a committee member several years ago. And in that capacity, I had evidence of his devious strategic mind because I noticed how he could, with one very penetrating question, just one, cause very senior civil servants opposite him or of agencies to shift rather uncomfortably in their seats. 
So I took some mental notes of how he managed to do that. Um, in addition, I also noticed and observed how, uh, as Janda said, he was a very sweet boy. I wasn't that, I'm not that old. I haven't observed him then. But I can believe that he was very sweet because he managed to ask this question in a very polite and gentle and maybe perhaps even sweet manner. Um, I don't intend to cause Mr. Ho to shift in his seat today, but perhaps you all might have some penetrating questions you might want to ask him because I also know I do not have such a devious strategic mind. So, but I will ask one question before I open it up to the floor, which is that you talked earlier about the proverbial frog in water, boiling water, and the dangers of creeping normality. What is the one issue in Singapore today, which you observed in your time in the civil service, that could have been a victim of creeping normality, and hence could have been prevented, but which we are still feeling or dealing with the consequences of? Well, there are probably many uh, issues of this uh, nature, and I don't think there's a single issue which uh, kind of springs to mind as the dominant uh, uh, frog or most impactful. But let's, let's just uh, think about uh, issues which uh, we have had to deal with. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them, I would say, is climate change. And I think climate change is a classic example, whether of a frog in boiling water or otherwise, uh, of how we fail to read the initial warning signs that it was a problem. And it came to a head, if you remember, uh, when we had this occurrence of flash floods, uh, including Orchard Road, and then we started to learn about terms like ponding, and then uh, people blamed uh, dirty drains and clogged up canals for this. But when this problem persisted, and the floods didn't just occur in Orchard Road, but uh, popped up everywhere, uh, uh, you suddenly realised that actually there was something more than that. And so, I think to the credit of the Singapore government, eventually they overcame this uh, uh, problem and they started looking uh, at what was causing this. And what they realized was, apart from the obvious contribution, which is urbanization, uh, you know, uh, which uh, creates a lot more challenges for drainage, the real problem was uh, the intensity of rainfall had increased tremendously. And what caused the increase in uh, intensity of rainfall? It was rising temperatures. We live in a, a part of the world where rain is caused by convection. And the rain becomes more intense if the temperatures are higher. So the higher the temperatures, the more intense the rainfall is. So whether you have a, a first world, first class uh, drainage system, as we did. Uh, it's not good enough when uh, something as fundamental as rising temperatures begin to uh, take root and cause uh, more intense rainfall because the system is not designed for that. So 
Every now and then we are going to be confronted by these kind of uh, uh, problems. I don't want to point uh, fingers at you know, identifying which uh, other examples. I can think of a few, but I won't mention them here. But we, we have problems like this. Question is whether, uh, how long we take to respond. I think usually uh, in Singapore, I think the government deserves quite a lot of credit for uh, coming to terms with the reality rather than let the system just stew and then it just blows up into a crisis. But the, just think of the drainage problem. We are now spending billions of dollars now uh, revamping the entire drainage system because it's such a big impact. So we are going to face more and more of these things. If you attend my next lectures, you'll understand why this is, uh, this is not an advertisement, but this is just a <laughs> statement that actually uh, change is happening so fast that we can hardly keep up with this change. What is one way to prevent, um, to or at least to reduce the time taken to come to some sort of... A ah, well, uh, I will again touch on it in a future lecture, but let me say that you actually need to have a, a group of people whose job it is just to focus on these kinds of issues. Because if you are just thinking of the day-to-day -day problems, you actually don't have bandwidth to think about longer-term uh, issues. And the, if you try to think about longer-term issues, it begins to impact on your own uh, thinking and uh, your ability to deal with the day-to-day -day problems. So it's, it's not the right mix. You should have a group of people whose business it is to just think about these uh, issues and say, what are the next uh, emerging issues which are just lurking over the horizon? Where are there any black elephants? Sometimes there are a lot of black elephants and questions whether you're going to do anything about it. Sometimes you need a group, you know, like this uh, little boy, uh, Emperor's New Clothes, to point out the obvious which everybody is pretending uh, can't see. Can't see. Yeah. But uh, we, we need that sort of thing. Question is, are you prepared to invest in it? So Singapore government has invested in it through scenario planning process, but also more recently through setting up something called the Centre for Strategic Futures. In fact, I would say in my, in my experience, we are probably the only government in the world that takes futures thinking as seriously as we do and which thinks about the future as systematically as we do. I'm not saying we are perfect. We have not reached the 10th level of Nirvana, but uh, we are doing, I think, relatively better than most. Okay, thank you very much. So before I open the floor to questions, there are people in the other room. All you need to do is to write your question down, hand them over to the staff, and they will bring them over. Can I invite you all to come to the mics to ask your questions? And please identify yourself, where you're from, give us your name before you ask your question, please. The lady in front. There's a lady in front. Oh, it's Jillian. I could only see a hand just now. That's why I, that's why I gave the question. To Good her. evening. Thank you, Chairperson. Uh, my question is this. Uh, Mr. Ho, you've taken us through uh, the limitations of reductionist thinking, um, especially with regard to wicked and complex problems. So what are the implications for the way that we train or uh, train in school or rather train for the public service uh, and organize it? Um, are specific disciplines still important or uh, 
would you then say the way we educate public servants or even think tankers like ourselves would be to send them to liberal arts college, for, for instance? The second one has to do with reward. Um, if you build up the ability to foretell the future, uh, you want to get to a point where you can explain why something did not happen. So how do you reward the success of dodging the bullet, of um, being able to have said, well, look, this didn't happen. Um, I suppose this will cut to how civil servants expect to be rewarded if they work outside of their turf and work with one another in coordinating agencies. Thank you. Well, very briefly, uh, first, this business of training. I think we have to uh, uh, be quite realistic that we cannot train everybody to be a, a futurist or uh, people to think about the future. It will be a disaster for government, for any, gov for any organization to have people who just think about the future without worrying about the here and now, how to, how to bring home the bacon. So I think, uh, I, I think we can't do that. The, the people who, who you're looking for are people who are very broad-minded, very open. Uh, my own ex in my experience, those who do this kind of work shouldn't stay too long in that business because otherwise uh, they will also become victims of establishment capture. They'll be captured by a certain way of thinking and the freshness is lost. But you do look for people who don't necessarily have depth but who have breadth, who are open-minded, who are able to think. Having said that, I think, uh, since you talked about educational, uh, our education system, I think increasingly the real problems of the world require an interdisciplinary approach. They cannot be solved uh, just by, say, taking an engineering solution and then you think you've solved it. In fact, many of the uh, most difficult problems are going to be a combination of uh, uh, finding the technical solutions, which are in some ways almost the easier solutions to find, and then uh, finding the ability to combine that with the social or behavioral nudges to encourage people to use those uh, solutions. So I think a lot of uh, emphasis will have to be placed in the future in our educational systems. Uh, towards this interdisciplinary training. So if you think about something like the SUTD, the Singapore University of Technology and Design, it's probably one of the few, if not the first institution, certainly the first in Singapore, for which this interdisciplinary approach uh, is at the core of its educational philosophy. I think you have to do a lot more of it. It's because of the nature of the world we live in. The second point about uh, reward. You know, if you work in any organization, you generally not get rewarded for getting things right. But, uh, you know, if you get things wrong, you'll be uh, scolded. So the only appeal is the, the bosses need to a bit, be a bit more uh, tolerant. But we cannot, please don't start thinking that uh, this is all about prediction and getting things right. When I quoted uh, Winston Churchill, it was not without uh, a touch of irony because the reality is you'll never get it right and in fact uh, you know I'm advising the Center for Strategic Futures I do tell the staff in the Center for Strategic Futures you must have no ego if you are in this business 
You cannot have an ego because if you get it right, you'll get no credit for that. And of course, if you get it wrong, you'll be poo-pooed you know, and, and denigrated. So you can't have an ego. All right, thank you very much. Gentleman in front. Uh, thank you for the interesting talk, Mr. Ho. It's always interesting to hear you speak. I'd just like to ask... Could you uh, identify... I'm David from name? RSIS. I'd like to just uh, ask a question regarding uh, to bipolar tendencies of the world because from a unipolar uh, world of the US being dominant now, it's shifting towards bipolarism. And in terms of the global economy, uh, monetary economy, you have the IMF and other World Bank organizations, they are trying to solve the wicked problem of uh, development and financial crisis. But as we can see from the Asian financial crisis and the global economic crisis, uh, these problems, these black swan problems were not uh, anticipated and were not solved quickly. That may have led to the development of regionalism, regional organizations such as the AMRO, Chiang Mai multilateral in initiatives. Now, uh, my question is, do you think that this is a good uh, way to solve the world's problems in this aspect of monetary uh, problems? And what role can Asia, and particularly Singapore, play in this increasingly uh, multilateral approaches? Thank you. Well, first, I'm not an expert on all these uh, international multilateral structures. But my observation is that uh, we have shifted from uh, if I could put it this way, from a, a bipolar world, which was the world defined uh, uh, by the Cold War, to a world which you, one could argue was unipolar for a very short period of time, into something far more complex and far more messy. And the changes uh, which are happening today are happening uh, in a way that is very hard to know where they are leading to. In fact, the fundamental question we should ask ourselves is whether the changes which we are seeing today, are not just the challenges in places, regions like Europe, in, uh, in the United States, uh, but also some of the uh, pushback against, uh, uh, against uh, free trade and some of these uh, global institutions that uh, promote globalization. Uh, whether this is just a temporary phenomenon or whether in fact we have entered a new era. Is this just a phase which uh, maybe four or five years down the road when things have settled down, people come to their senses, then things will be better? Or have we actually entered a new and far more complex phase? Because the world we know it was actually a world defined after the Second World War by the victors. And uh, it's a world we have kind of got used to living in but does this mean that uh, the world is basically on that trajectory and we are just seeing uh, some ripples around that uh, general trajectory or is it something else? Has a basic change taken place? And we don't know. But you can already see some warning signs that this is more than just a passing phase. Because uh, we've got big problems in Europe there's rising nationalism, there's increasing populism, there's a, a pushback against uh, free trade. Uh, some of the big countries are saying that they are going to uh, bypass the World Trade Organization. What, what does that mean? And I, I think 
you cannot say that uh, the institutions which are being bypassed or being ignored or for which contributions are being slashed uh, uh, by huge uh, percentages are going to be in any position to uh, restore uh, the world to the status quo ante. So I don't know. The, 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 this is a long way of saying, actually, I don't know the answer to your <laughs> question. But, but you have to start thinking through these things, you, you see, and then you have to, uh, if you agree that it's a phase, then okay, we, we just uh, batten down the hatches and when the storm is over, things will be back to normal. That's one approach. But I suspect that's a bit of a black elephant approach. Instead, it could be a new phase, and if it's a new phase, you have to revisit every single policy, every single assumption. Thank you very much, sir. There's a question before I take this from the other room, from Cairo from URA. He's asking whether, while the government can embrace complexity, how, whether or not you think the public also needs to appreciate and understand the complexity of policymaking and, and what goes behind well, government thinking. I, I think it's, it's hard enough for the government to uh, deal with complexity and to understand complexity and the meaning of complexity and how it impacts on uh, governance and the making of policy. I think it's going to be even uh, much more difficult uh, for the public to uh, understand complexity in the way I've presented it here. But I think the, it's not so much complexity because complexity is just a way to frame what is essentially a, a basic point. And that basic point is there are never easy answers. You can have a problem which arises. Everybody has different expectations of what the solution should be. It's the government's job to make the judgment uh, over uh, what the right uh, median point is going to be. A lot of people will be unhappy, but it's the nature of uh, government, it's their business. If you don't have the stomach, if you want to be popular all the time, you're going to be in trouble. Okay, gentlemen, Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ho, for your insightful presentation. And that, that leads to my question. Could you identify yourself, uh, please? And huh? your name and where oh. you're from? I'm Tui Zizai from Hua Chong Institution. Uh, you mentioned that in order to tackle the complex problems of today, we need to do, firstly, have a more holistic approach of evaluation of the, of the situations. Secondly, use a scientific method that deal with complex or chaotic systems. And third, using a whole of government, a whole of nation. And uh, me implying, uh, inferring from your uh, explanations of the, the way we deal with climate change, maybe we even need a whole globally approach towards this wicked problems. So my question is, given that the mainstream thought, a way of thinking is still largely Newtonian and people, uh, at least for me, still assume the causality and simple cause and effects uh, uh, rule, uh, way, way of understanding the world. How do, what are your insights on getting your message across throughout the public. Is it just me or mind being simplistic? Or is it that this problem itself is a wicked problem? Uh, no, uh, I, my I, second I question think, is, yeah. um, uh, 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 my second question is, what, what is, is the role of 
So, uh, what is the role of the traditional long-term way of uh, thinking of causality in this new, increasingly complex world? Thank you. Uh, well, the, 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 the first uh, point, uh, I kind of half answered it yes, because uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, got to take a certain uh, specialized audience and a discipline to talk about complexity. As I said, uh, it's, it's far more uh, constructive to have dialogues to explain why problems are very complex, why they're difficult and there's no solution. But to try to get everybody to understand complexity is quite a different ballgame. It took me years to understand complexity and I don't even begin to uh, think I have anything more than a superficial understanding of complexity. So, so that's uh, the, the first uh, point. But I, I just wanted to make the point that while I think Singapore government is actually unusual because I think today complexity has crept into the vocabulary of uh, civil servants. Mm -hmm. They use it a lot. Many of them do understand what it is. Some of them don't. But the, <laughs> the important point is that at least Singapore government has a fighting chance to, 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 to deal with complexity and manage complexity. I cannot think of any other government where, where, where you find the, uh, an understanding of complexity in the way I have framed it uh, here. Singapore, you can, you can find it. And which is why, you know, it's very difficult to, to uh, think that global institutions can come together in a whole of globe or whole of world government way to solve the world's problems. It just doesn't work. You look at the United Nations, it's got huge challenges just trying to get agreement on some of these big uh, problems, whether it's poverty or climate change and so on. Uh, on the role of long term, there's always got to be a role uh, in government for thinking about the long term. Question is, how do you think about the long term? Do you think about the long term as just a straight line to the future which you are able to predict? Or do you think about the long term as something that is perhaps a bit uh, uncertain and where the future itself is indeterminate? So that's, uh, that's the issue. And I think it is a very critical issue because the environment we are living in is changing so fast I'll be talking about accelerating change in my next lecture, and, and, and this is one of the big problems. Thank, thank you. you very yeah. much. Gentlemen, gentlemen yeah. in front thank of Mike, you, for the lady at the back. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Mr. Ho, for your insightful talk. My name is Sun Xi. I'm a Chinese graduate of the Lee Kuan School of Public Policy, and currently a computer writer based in Singapore. Yeah. So in this complex world, I think uh, most problem, problems need uh, long-term planning strategies. But on the other hand, politicians face short-term election pressure. Speaking out the hard truth is not always politically correct, and sometimes like uh, suicide. Then how to make a choice and uh, keep the balance? Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, if, if you, you think about it, uh, every politician is caught on the horns of a dilemma. Uh, many of the policies he wants to make for all the best and most altruistic reasons 
uh, often re require that he be in position to see through these things over his election cycle. So if he is uh, totally uh, uh, logical, he will have to make uh, decisions that aren't popular, which will guarantee that he's not going to be elected. And if he's not going to be elected, a new guy comes in, new party comes in, new leadership comes in, uh, all his uh, great plans will come to nothing. So this is, uh, in itself, you could say is a wicked uh, problem for, uh, for a political leader. I think it's in all these things, it is always about how you find the right balance. You know, if you swing too extreme that you just worry about your, uh, your chances of being elected, you'll do no long-term planning, you'll do no long-term thinking, you, you won't plan for the future. Then I think uh, you're not really uh, uh, helping the people at large. On the other hand, if you just pursue doggedly uh, what is a conviction that this is the best in the long-term interest, then, in fact, you may not get a chance even to uh, kick the ball down the road. So, you, so that, that's the dilemma. And I think I see, uh, in, and it depends on which example you look at, some countries, the leadership are better able to uh, find the right balance. Others, they don't. And then you can see the consequences when they don't find the right balance. Is it about planning for the long term but communicating for the short term? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yes, the gentleman at mic for the lady. Thank you, Chair. We are actually running out of time, so if you could keep your question to one, please. Okay. So uh, I've got one question. Uh, I'm Marcus Lowe. I'm from the uh, education sector. Um, Mr. Ho, you, speak, you spoke about uh, tackling wicked problems with a whole of government approach. You also mentioned earlier about the UN and how the UN is, seems to be falling short of solving world problems. On the other hand, you have got organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, organizations from the private sectors, which seem to be quite effective. Uh, when I think about that from a local perspective, maybe the government might also acknowledge that they don't have a monopoly of all ideas. As we tackle a whole of nation problems, what do you think, in your opinion, is the role of the private sector in playing much more central roles than just being, instead of just being a member of, let's say, an advisory committee or being a member of a government committee, can private sector take the lead? Government comes in, maybe to advise, maybe to share your insights, but it's led by the private sector. Do you see that happening uh, in the future as we tackle more complex problems? Thank you. I, I think there's uh, certainly a, a, a very compelling argument uh, to have uh, both the private as well as people sectors getting involved in governance, not government. Government is an entity that uh, obviously by definition excludes the private sector and the uh, people sectors. But governance, which is uh, the government plus the people and the private sectors, uh, clearly can uh, uh, do a lot more together and that is because uh, the government today finds itself in a position where there are such complex problems that they don't have the monopoly of wisdom nor the monopoly of insight. So I think we, are, we have to find a way uh, 
uh, in how to uh, organize these relationships. It's not necessarily always uh, going to be a comfortable relationship, but can they uh, interact better? Can the private sector and the people sector take more responsibility? Can they take more role? I think the answer is certainly they can and they should because in a complex world where nobody has a monopoly of wisdom, you want some additional uh, insights. The question is, even if we say this is desirable, and even if the government wants to do it, does the private sector want to do it? I'm, uh, I'm uh, also of the view that sometimes when we talk about uh, uh, self-regulation, the private sector hates that. They dislike uh, self-regulation because they got no one to blame but themselves if something goes wrong. So the answer is yes, we should. But uh, you know, it's something that will evolve over time. And you can see that uh, steps have started to happen in Singapore. I think in the economic front, they've gone through this, all these economic review committees, which is a way of getting people involved. Now our Singapore conversation is a way of uh, involving the social side of things. But it still doesn't uh, yet reach the point which I think you are talking about. But I think it is work in progress. In fact, my own sense is that Singapore has moved further and faster down this road than most governments. Thank you. Okay, we have time for just one last question. Gentlemen at the mic, sorry, it's already been there waiting. Please. Uh, good evening, Mr. Ho. Uh, my name is Adrian. I'm a teacher. Uh, you shared about um, how SUTD is one uh, education institution that is now taking a very interdisciplinary approach. Um, and you also shared how, uh, for yourself as well, it's taken you many years and, you're, and you feel you are barely scratching the surface in terms of understanding complexity and all that. I'm a secondary school teacher. I'm actually keen to uh, hear your thoughts on um, how you think we can actually uh, get more teachers to understand the kinds of complexities that we are living in today and how would we be able to convey this or help our students to understand complexity or even interdisciplinary approaches at a slightly larger level, uh, given that they are still quite young and not so mature? Well, a related uh, uh, approach is what we call the design approach. I, I don't know whether you have heard of the design approach, that, but that is to uh, look at a problem uh, from different points of view, especially from the point of view of uh, the people who are most affected by the, the problem. Uh, and this is very uh, interdisciplinary. There, there's no, uh, I would say, a, no single discipline that can produce all the answers. So it's just a habit. But I think the way you have to do it in the schools, and I think this is also the way they do it in SUTD, but I'm not an expert. Huh? Uh, they, they, they have they take real-world problems because it's the real-world problems that require this kind of uh, design approach or uh, uh, interdisciplinary approach. And more and more, the real-world problems require uh, people from many disciplines uh, to come together. So you can throw a real-world problem at your students, ask them to solve it, and they will discover that uh, you know just having the science may not be enough, they must understand the uh, societal uh, context, they may have to talk to uh, different people and see how these problems affect them to understand what the problem really is and uh, therefore what possible solutions are. And remember there are no right or wrong answers and this is again the real world. Thank you Mr. Ho. 
Ryan, thank you very much. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, could I ask you to put your hands together to thank Mr. Peter Hall for the general time and for giving us a very good insight into complexity. Thank you, Mr. Ho and Ms. Sun. If Mr. Ho's lecture has left you with a bigger appetite for more intellectual sustenance, please visit the booths outside selling IPS books with special discounts. <laughs> Mr. Ho's book on governance is available, as are books on the past two IPS Northern Lecture Series by Mr. Ho Kwamping and Ambassador Bilahari Kausikan, respectively. Do support us. The next lecture by Mr. Ho will be on 19 April. Details on our website. We hope to see you then. Good evening to all and thank you.